This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my good friend, Kurt Wolf. Hey, it is good to have you back, buddy. We missed you on the last episode. How you doing? I'm okay. You know, food poisoning's nothing to fool around with. You know, my <laughs> wife, I've been making my own meals recently, and so she's got a little bit of a smirk on her face when I got under the weather about how, how much of a culinary artist I might be, Kurt. But uh, thanks for picking up the slack and putting out a great episode on, on what fiduciary duty really is. Yeah, it was a fun episode. It was good chatting with Knut Rostad. But glad to have you back. Glad you're on the mend. You know, I haven't seen you for a while. I understand last week you were out in Chicago at a PLI internal investigations program or seminar. How was that? It is one of my favorite things to attend every year. For those of you who haven't attended, I would encourage you to go check it out at PLI.edu. It is a really walkthrough of about maybe 90 minutes to an hour of literally animated scripted content that describes this business with very fun character names describing these individuals who are stealing <laughs> trade secrets or potentially, you know, releasing press releases before before time. But the best part is after you watch, you know, maybe two or three minutes of that that animated scenario, you've got a panel of four or five people who live and eat, sleep, and breathe this all day, and they talk about yeah. the issues with the CEO whose name was Oli Gark. Kurt, if you pick that up, oligarch there, so things like that come in. So really great discussion, and I think the the best part about it was we had probably about 25 people in the room, and I think over 100 virtually. The questions took up the vast majority of it, which always makes for a more more interesting presentation. But I know that I, Kurt, was not the only attendee at an industry-focused event. Talk to us about where you got into last week. Yeah, that's right. So while you were out, you know, in Chicago, I was attending the 89th annual Security Traders Association Market Structure Conference in our nation's capital. It was actually my first time attending the conference. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, Chris, it was an incredible event. And not just because of the first class goodie bags. They were good. Everybody was walking around <laughs> with their little important. white Robin Hood bag. You know, it had a, a copy of Bob Pisani's new book, Shut Up and Keep Talking, which we should totally steal for <laughs> that is our tagline. That is a yeah. great line. <laughs> but no, I mean, look, the lineup of speakers was remarkable. It featured an SEC commissioner who is a friend of the podcast, some high profile these television personalities, esteemed members of the press, just a, a truly impressive group of people and you know more importantly at least you know for for me and i believe the attendees the panel discussions were really substantive these are really meaty conversations and i know that sometimes we like to get in the weeds on you know equity market structure <laughs> issues we have been uh, accused but, of that yes <laughs> but these folks chris are are it's the who's who of market structure That's excellent and they got wonkier than we ever will <laughs> really quickly Great. but that was good that was good you know i i loved it they were talking about things like payment for order flow best execution crypto regulation a world where there may be you know 24 7 trading etfs just they they really covered the landscape it was a fantastic conference and at the end i just i came away feeling you know really energized and, and ready to to learn more so much so that i thought hey wouldn't it be great to have someone from <laughs> STA come on the podcast and bottom line some of this stuff for us so our, our listeners can benefit from some of that great 
content that I picked up in person. And as luck would have it, Jim Toes, who is the president and CEO of the STA, and he was the unofficial MC of the Market Structure Conference, he, he accepted our invitation to come on the show. And he is here with us today to share some of his takeaways from the conference. So I'm excited to talk to Jim. But Chris, before we do that, why don't you just give us a little bit of background on Jim for our listeners? I would love to. As you said, Kurt, Jim Toes is the president and CEO of the Security Traders Association. We'll be using the acronym, not a part of our bingo card yet, the acronym STA to talk <laughs> about the, org the organization, which is a grassroots trade organization which serves individuals employed in the financial services industry. In his role, Jim maintains STA's relationship with U.S. regulators and congressional policymakers. Since assuming his role in 2011, STA has written more than 50 comment letters on a wide range of issues under the regulatory oversight of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the Department of Treasury, the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, FINRA, and the Senate and House Financial Services Committees. And Jim is a frequent contributor to STA's monthly newsletter, as well as its Taking Stock and Lighthouse columns online. Jim has over 30 years experience in the securities business, including 18 years as a managing director at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Jim has also served on various best execution and market structure committees and has testified before Congress. I cannot think of a better person to help illuminate the plumbing of market structure on yeah. this episode today. Kurt, Jim, welcome to the Insecurities Podcast. Thanks for having me. I really do appreciate it. I mean, I, I think as you'll find, I'm pretty passionate about the industry and also about the role of STA in it. And I'm just, so an opportunity to kind of talk about STA is, is, is I'll never, I'll never pass up an opportunity to do this. I, I really do. Thank you for having us on. Of course. Well, Jim, a challenge accepted. You want to talk <laughs> about STA? Tell us a little bit about STA. What, what, what does STA do? Yeah. So, so we're a trade association. We've, we've been around for 89 years and like, like most trade associations, we do a lot of things around education and advocating on behalf of our members but I think what, what makes us different than most associations in the financial services industry is that our members are individuals employed in the industry, right? They're unlike, you know, Morgan Stanley is a member of SIFMA, but Morgan Stanley employees are members of STA. And that does that is a pretty big difference. It kind of drives the types of education that we do. We care about career development. We're just trying to make people's lives a little bit easier in, a, in an industry that is getting com more complex every day. Yeah, that, that, that is an interesting feature of, of your organization. I, I mean, I would note, too, that you do have some affiliates that, that appear to be organizations out there. I thought it was really cool at the very beginning of the conference last week. You know, I've, I, my career, it just so happens, has included a bunch of work in Canada. And so the conference opened with playing both the Canadian and the U.S. national anthems, which I think speaks to, you know, your membership and some of your affiliate relationships. But why don't you tell us a little bit about some of STA's affiliates? Yeah, so we, ha we have around 24 in the U.S. and Canada, and we do love our Canadian members. And, and what it is is like these affiliate boards, obviously, they tend to be in areas where there's a lot of financial services. They are run by volunteers who are employed in our industry. And what happens is when you join a local affiliate, like in Chicago, you become part of the national organization. So at the local level, it's a lot of volunteer work. At the national level, obviously, I do get paid to do this. And so that, that's where it's kind of different on it. So that is, and it really does contribute to, you know, that, that grassroots term, you know, that, that Chris used to describe this in, in the opening there. I mean, that's 
Grassroots, I got to tell you, that meant nothing to me until I started in this organization. Our, our ability, as we'll talk a little bit more about just kind of how the how DC works, but our ability to, to get a meeting with a congressional member always starts with our ability to say that we have an affiliate in your district. It's, we have, you know, this affiliate has 120 members from 12 firms, and that really provides us the ability to get a meeting with a representative who sits on the House Financial Services Committee. And then that, obviously, that meeting has benefits for all the affiliates. So we leverage that across all of it. And that grassroots nature of the organization, like I said, I, I did not understand how powerful that is, you know, a, a strength of the organization until I started doing this job. Kurt, I've never heard of another conference that plays national anthems, let alone those that should start every hockey game <laughs> in the NHL. So kudos, Jim, on a, on a great opener. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. Um, but we want to get before we get into some of the detail, and we'll talk about some of these topics and, and specifics uh, in a few minutes. But I'm interested in a little bit more about the policy areas that maybe the S STA gravitates towards, right? You talked about meeting with folks on the Hill, you know, that advocacy element, where, where's the, the general focus of STA? Yeah. So, you know, it kind of starts with like, like the value add that we kind of provide. It's like, we, we kind of, we view ourselves as like a filter or a curator on, on all things NDC for, you know, for firms that don't have like an organized regulatory or governmental resource to them. So I know that kind of sounds like, oh, we raise awareness and that sounds pretty soft, but it, but it's a much more meaningful and serious, you know, role that we play as far as helping them just be a curator and, and and giving them a heads up on it. And also, you know, we also view our role too, we, and we want to be proactive, right? There's a lot of rules coming across in various stages of their lifestyle, and it's really hard for some of our members to to, to track them. So that's another value area where we're more proactive on. And now as far as our priorities go, listen, I think our priorities, you know, are kind of driven by some of our guiding principles, right? So we have guiding principles that obviously we all hear regularly in our industry. You know, we we advocate for due process and transparency into the rulemaking process, industry engagement, anecdotal empirical data, all that stuff around rulemaking. And, and if we see a policy, you could almost throw a dart at any of the SEC proposals that have come out in the past 11 months where we do feel there's been a failure in a respect, of, of respect for the rulemaking process and the lack of due process around it. So that would be an area like where we at. That's a general thing that we do advocate for. We, like I said, so really what I'm trying to say is like we have guiding principles and then that kind of then when an issue comes across the, the table that falls into one of those things, that's where we tend to jump on it. So, you know, competition, reasonable barriers to entry, those are all areas. And, and there's, there's an example I can put under each one, but that's kind of where we strive for. No, that's great. And, and definitely, you know, a, a meaningful mission within within your constituency, with your membership as well. Let's get to the good stuff. I want to hear a lot about this 89th annual Market Structure Conference that ran from October 12th to 14th at the JW Marriott in D.C. We've got the tagline on the website of The Inflection Point, which I think is an interesting discussion in terms of the headliner. But the one thing I need to harp in on first is Kurt. Did you attend the Thursday morning yoga session as a part of the conference? <laughs> I know you were telling me you had a bad back a couple months ago. You better be better be I, taking care of yourself. I did not. I was on the train, which did not help my back. Yeah, Maybe okay, next yeah, it's year. opposite, opposite. <laughs> yeah. That's not written in the agenda. But uh, all kidding aside, Jim, what's the focus of the conference? What are the what's the attendee makeup? You know, what are the objectives that that this 89th now conference is bringing forward yeah. this year? Yeah, listen, I mean, it's it's a very diverse group, both geographically and also skill set. These where we our history is in the equity markets, 
Okay, that, that's where our that's where our our story starts. And when you think about all the technological advancements and the electronification that we've seen in the markets, it kind of started in the in the equity world first. Okay, so we have we've we've have a lot of our members have kind of transitioned from equities into other areas, be it ETFs, options, and now we're seeing it in crypto, or where. It's just this fundamental belief that because of the technology that we have in our marketplace today, that the ability for capital to kind of flow across asset classes with little friction is really one of the things that makes our marketplace just so dynamic and so deep and the best in the world on it. So it's all good, but but the challenge here is how do you cram all that content into like a day and a half? And and that's really it's it's really hard. Like you said, it, it you know it gets heavy. So so it is an overwhelming task. It is our marquee event. It is overwhelming to to plan it to make sure that you're making the absolute most of of the time there. We have no breaks. People, I, that's I know it's going to be a criticism. I've, I've stopped <laughs> sending out the post conference survey. The because, emails, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, you, know, you don't even have a bathroom break. Well, like you know, you're all adults. You, I don't think you need to be told when you have to go. But but it is it is you know like I said it is the marquee event. But I got to tell you, the thing that does make it easy for us in the planning is that there's two things. One is that it's always on our mind. It's not front of mind, but it's always on our mind about you know the conference next year, the conference. What are we going to do? But the second part is like if we if we're if we're doing our job right, the other eleven months, three weeks, and two days out of the year, then then planning this is not that difficult. And the planning is we know what issues we want to talk about, we know what issues we've been engaged with people on, therefore we know who are the subject matter experts. So really, this this the success of the event is really driven by what we're doing when the event is not taking place. And, uh, but it is pretty overwhelming. And yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, I mean, I, you're right. It, it did get pretty heavy. But one of the ways that I think you really helped bring that content across in a way that was, you know, digestible for everyone in the room, right? Because different people in there know more about some topics than others. But I, I felt like everybody was, was with you. And it, it's because I said this up top, you had great speakers. You had a really great lineup of panelists. And I just wanted to give you a second because I know you work hard to get those folks to come in and, and do this and, and give their time. Just want to let you highlight a couple that maybe you were excited sure. to see up on the stage this year. Sure. I mean, listen, we, we're obviously we're very happy to see Commissioner Purse come up. It's always nice to get a couple of CEOs from publicly traded companies come spend time with you. So having Doug Sifu and Ed Tilly was it was always value add. Dan Gallagher obviously has been a regular at our conference since, you know, since he was a commissioner. Uh, we've always kept maintained a relationship with him, but I think the one that that we were, I don't say most proudest about, but I think the one that we were got most excited about was the the, the new director of the trading and markets at the SEC, and then that's a director Zhu. So because they, I, I mean, I'm sure. Listen, I know you had SEC speaks, and that was one thing. Getting them, getting Gensler's lieutenants to kind of come out in public and talk has been has been a little bit of a challenge for the for the broader industry to talk in person. So we really felt that, you know, getting him to come in person, you know, we were really happy to do that again, you know, probably after having several meetings with them on various topics via Zoom. So I think there was a trust factor there that he was good with. But I can tell you, the one thing, if you ever, if you are planning this conference, a conference like this, it is the speakers, it's really the moderators though. And, and we get, if you look at the list of the moderators that we have, they're all, the majority of them are market structure geeks. They're, they're publishing market. <laughs> they're publishing this stuff. They this is like 
this is their Super Bowl as well. Getting an opportunity to interview some of these people one-on-one, they really take it seriously, they're, they're conscientious about it, and they really do make the event. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Actually, I was I was impressed, I have to say, by how well things flowed, right? Because you're right, there weren't breaks in between. But your panels didn't run over. That's down to the moderators doing a good job. But then you also, I mean, you just had some good conversations. Like John Ramsey of IEX, he's a friend of the podcast. The conversation with Commissioner Purse was great. And, you know, he kind of kept it moving along. He, you know, he kept it friendly, right? Which is, which is good. So, yeah, a lot of credit to the moderators. You're absolutely right, Jim. Uh, so let's get into into the actual content a little bit. We've been kind of talking about the STA and the, and the planning, but we want to talk about some of the key topics or some of the themes that ran through the conference that stick out in your mind. You've had a few days to reflect on it now, and so Chris, why don't you you know kick us off with a with a topic and let's uh, let's let Jim go. Yeah, we might as well start from the top. You know, the SEC's regulatory agenda was a major feature in many of the discussions at the conference. I don't know if my numbers are completely up to date, but I think in fiscal 22, we're talking about 30 new major rules, uh, as well as uh, almost 20 more that are expected to come in the next fiscal year. Kurt, you and I have have done multiple episodes, you know, touching on the the top line of many of these you know, rules, some of them being outdated and yep. some of them dealing with with new technology and new issues in the market. So, Jim, kind of open season for you. You know, what were the, the key discussions about the SEC's regulatory agenda and and their areas for improvement at the conference? Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it obviously came up a lot, you know, just the, the not, not just the breadth of, you know, issues and, and areas that, that he's, that these filings are on, but also how deep they go. It isn't, you know, some of these rule filings we've, we've kind of felt were almost like three filings in, into one on it and, and how they kind of, the frustration here, obviously, you know, and, and I know you've, you've spoken about this, the short comment periods, a lack of industry input, how one ha- has a major impact. The outcome of rule A is determined what you're going to say about rule B, but you're looking for input on rule B when you don't know what the outcome on rule A is yet. And, and those, that's really some of the general frustration. There, but I think some of the things that kind of did pop up and, and at, is around, you know, it does seem at a high level that there's this like a, this desire to kind of create, you know, one, one set of rules for, for everybody. You know, if you're a regulator, I can understand it from a regulatory standpoint. It does, your life is a lot easier if you have one rule set um, you know, they'll argue that it's more efficient. We'll just say that you're just trying to make it easier on yourself by having one set of rules for all participants, maybe doing some similar activity here. But, you know, listen, whenever you take like a one size fits all approach, you know, it always leads to, to trouble, to problems on it. So, you know, we just not, some of these rules that have come across, you know, like the FINRA one around, you know, reproposing amendments, the rule 15B9-11, you know, for giving exempt, certain exemptions to market makers. You know, you know that, that that that's a classic example of what I just kind of described. Where you're trying to, you know, you kind of have this this you know, market makers and options that are registered at, at an exchange or multiple exchanges. Now you want to make them become FINRA members, and you're kind of painting it under the brush that well, you know, one set of rules for these types of participants. And it's been our history that you, that you don't get one set of rules replacing three. You just put another rule on top of the existing three. And then when you have that one size fits all, it, it then it spills into an unreasonable barrier to entry. It makes it really hard for, you know, especially in the options market making place. It's been our experience that when someone leaves that industry, they're not backed and filled by somebody else. Like they're just gone. They're gone. And that's because the barriers for new participants to come in to be an options market maker is just so hard to come into it. I mean, even Doug Seafood touched on that when he, when he in that speed round, you know, Virtue's having a hard time competing in, in the options space. 
You know, it's it's a high barrier to entry to get all the technology in place on it. So th those are kind of the, listen, it's at a high level. We don't like some of these, you know, new terms, getting hit with new terms. We don't like the new, the, the common periods. And we don't understand it. Like, we just don't understand, like, what is the, like, you know, like, what is the issue with, with, with equity marketplace that really needs to be fixed? We still don't really know what the problem is on, on a lot of these these issues that they're going after. You know, so. Sorry. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. I mean, the, the sort of. On that, I know I went on a tangent, but did I answer it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. No, that that's good. I mean, it's one of the things I noticed too, Jim, was this concept of how one size fits all rulemaking maybe doesn't fit at all. The thing that, that I recalled was people talking about best execution and how that yeah. maybe means something different to institutional investors versus retail investors. And yet the the thinking is that maybe they're all going to have to, you know, play by the same rule or set of rules. So I mean it's a, it was an interesting takeaway. I'm glad I picked up one of the themes you did. I think that means I was I was paying attention. But one of the one of the other themes that that I thought kind of ran through many of the panel discussions and frankly this was the same at SEC speaks a few weeks ago, but it had to do with digital assets or crypto regulation. It came up you know, time and again on these panels. And some of the things that I heard people saying, I mean, really starting with Commissioner Purse, just sort of kicking things off with that first fireside chat. She said to John Ramsey, look, what we need is collaboration and clarity, not more regulation by enforcement. The folks in this room need to understand the rules. And a lot of people picked up on that throughout the conference, this concept of we need we need clarity. So, I mean, tell us a little bit more about that. What What did you hear? What might be some of your members' concerns? What, what do you think could be a good outcome here? You know, Anthony Denier from uh, the CEO from Webull, when he spoke, you know, he mentioned about that the, ma the majority of the new clients that are signing on to the Webull platform, which is a mobile app, they're, they're crypto traders first. And so that that's their first experience now. And that's something that everyone is kind of grappling with is that, you know, this new investor, how are they coming into our marketplace and what experiences are they getting? And they're coming from the crypto space. A lot of these new investors are coming in, are trading crypto first, and then they come into our marketplace and they don't understand things like, I don't get it. I put my order in. How come, I don't, how come I'm not getting a fill on my Tesla? Well, it's two o'clock in the morning. It's not two o'clock in the afternoon. You know, I sold my stock an hour ago. Where's my cash? Well, there's a T plus two seven in, in equity. So, so I think that's really that that is that is impacting everyone, every even asset managers, exchanges, whether it's crypto or the blockchain. How are we going to you know compete for these new investors? What has to be provided to them? How are we going to facilitate twenty four seven? But the importance of, of of the of the roadmap is really for the people who are obviously providing the picks and shovels to enable this marketplace to flourish. And it, it, I'm, I'm actually amazed it's gotten as far as it has without any regulatory rule book on it. And yeah. it's and, and it is scary because, you know, it's got it's at an inflection point. <laughs> it's gotten so big, which is one of the reasons <laughs> why we gave the name for the conference. You know, it was like it's at it's you know, some people will say inflection. Some people will say it's on the tipping point. You mm -hmm. know, and there's a difference between an inflection point and a tipping point on something. But but they're at this point now where it's like. Just telling, if you're a regular, as a regular, just telling these people to come in and, and file, like that's not good enough. Like you gotta, you gotta be, kind of, putting out some rules of the road here, at least in the beginning. You know, like I, you know, stable coins. I, th I thought Zach Dexter was was very good on Friday talking about that. 
you know, we got we got to get some clarity on stable coins. So let, let's start there. That that seems like it could be, you know, a, a low lying fruit area yeah. on it. But but they can't move forward on these things until we get some regulatory leadership on it. You know, someone's got to lead this because it's going to take some congressional action on it. And uh, you know, DC is a is a big vacuum. If you don't step in to fill a need, somebody less qualified is probably going to step in and fill it instead of you. So it really would be good to have some leadership here on on which way this regulatory uh, you know uh, regime should look for digital apps. Jim, I think that's a good point, and and I really you know kind of latched on to your thought about the transition from the entry point of investors in the crypto market to kind of a more traditional equities market. And I liken it to something my, my friend who's an elementary school teacher told me a few years ago about keeping kids' attention in, in the classroom. And it's hard because those kids leave the classroom and go home and they're on an Xbox, you know, with a, a visual that's moving constantly and talking to somebody in, in Asia, you know, in English and just kind of jumping around in every direction. Then they're asked to come and sit quietly and write something with a pencil and paper in their classroom can be difficult for for that transition. So I can see exactly all those complaints of, hey, you know, my crypto trading is happening instantaneously when I get my Kurt coin, which Kurt, I'm still waiting for that to take off. If, if that hasn't gone up recently, I haven't checked yet today. <laughs> yeah. And then moving over to buying and selling Tesla or even something, God forbid, even more boring like General Electric or one of the more stable kind of blue chips from years beyond. And that taking multiple days, right, from an intention span perspective can seem like an eternity. One of the things we want to talk about, too, is at the conference, a discussion of one of Kurt's favorite acronyms I know, DEPs, Digital Engagement <laughs> oh, Practices, yeah. or colloquially called gamification. For those of you listening to this episode who maybe need a refresh on gamification generally, you can check out the Insecurities Podcast, episode 52, where Kurt and I spoke with Nebraska College of Law professor James Tierney, who's written extensively on the idea of gamification. But, Jim, I want to toss to you, you know, where do you see DEPs or Digital Engagement Practices? How are were they brought up at the conference and what were the issues discussed there? Yeah. So listen, it, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard area to really, you know, it's freedom of speech. It's around, it, it, it pulls in so many other bigger issues here. I don't know. The, the part that was kind of surprised that didn't come up was like, I, I am encouraged that the SEC went after some of these influencers. And I think that that is a positive role to go down. Okay. But I think it is really hard to hold broker dealers account, broker dealers who offer a self-directed platform to investors, to have them play some type of a enforcement or you know gatekeeper. I guess that's a term that they you know well they are a gatekeeper, but you know to 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 self-directed investors in this area of meme stocks or whatever we we want to call it, right? Yes, I mean obviously that there's a role for them to be playing as far as. You know, what information are they pushing out? But it isn't just that. It's also when we're talking about this gamification world of this meme world, you know, I could be getting my information all the, from a completely different area away from my broker dealer and then, and then behaving in, su in such a way on, on the self-directed platform that the broker, de the broker dealer doesn't know I'm over here that I'm, I'm surfing the web all day and stuff. So I think I think kind of the two approaches is what is the broker dealer doing in this area? And then what is what is reasonable as far as what can be expected of him in, in their ability to police it? So, uh, you know, it's it's certainly not going away. And, and like I said before, the education part, there were obviously benefits to, to, to some of this stuff around helping people, ed, you know, become educated on the product. But it is it is still concerning, like, is it really leading to more trade? Listen, we do believe that the more you trade, 
odds are, you know, it's going to be eating into your profits, you know, the transaction costs around it. We like the folks to be educated and, uh, uh, you know, and, I, and I, listen, and I know the regulators are, they, they, have, they have a big test guy. I don't know how to go after that. I, I would just kind of take a couple of victories here and there. Go after the influencers. Try to try to at least dem uh, demonstrate an understanding that broker deals who have, you know, self-directed platforms, they're all not doing these push-out notifications. So uh, if you look, maybe, you know, at least acknowledge that. Yeah, Jim, and just a brief pause here. For any of those influencers out there listening to the Insecurities Podcast, feel free to reach out and become a guest, especially if you have over 40 million followers on Instagram. Sorry, yeah. Kurt, go ahead. <laughs> wow, I can't, I can't wait to see who, who takes you up on that. Yeah, the Definitely. DM from that's going to be great. You should at Chris, not me. That's at Ekimoff CPA. No, look, I, I thought that the, the conversation around digital engagement practices or gamification was really interesting. And in particular, you know, Dan Gallagher's comments about, about gamification. And, you know, there was this really interesting moment during, during his remarks when he said, look, I think there is, and this isn't a direct quote, but he said, I think there's a little bit of a mythology building up around what's happening on these self-directed apps. And, you know, I looked around the room and saw a lot of nodding heads and, you know, I dare say some, some quiet applause, right? Because I think that's certainly the industry's perspective is that they're, they're not necessarily you know, encouraging people or enticing people to go out and trade. And that, like you said, they may be getting information elsewhere. But I guess I, I wondered what your your thoughts or reaction were to this idea that that maybe there is no problem. Maybe it is just a myth. I, I'm just, I don't listen. I, if I'm a regulator, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking in this area. OK, right, right, as a general statement, regulators don't like to see like widespreads in anything as it relates to how investors, their experience or what, or what's being provided to them. So, I mean, we'll use like, you know, I know that the FINRA came out with their, you know, complex products and, and options request for comment. And to be, be clear, it's not a rule filing. They're just looking for information, which I think is a responsible way. But when you think about how people come into the options world and, and what gets made available to them on a self-directed platform, the, the spread between some, some broker dealers just provide that options disclosure agreement, which is kind of like a legal document, and then there you go. You know, you, you, you go through it, you fill, out the, you fill out the form. If everything is filled out properly, you're good to go. Other firms go to the other extreme where they, where they provide an enormous amount of educational material for investors, not, not just to learn how to trade options. or It's really tools to help them be able to assess how good they are or how bad they are on it. So that's a pretty big spread. One investor comes in through door A, they get a legal document. Another investor comes in through lower to, to the other door, and they get an enormous amount of educational resources available to them. As a, as me as a regulator, should I be looking to maybe you know tighten those guardrails? Is should this you know entity on the left have to do more? Obviously, this other their competitor is doing more, so there must be some area around us. So I, I, you know, it's, it's a tricky area, but I, I do think that it is response. It, you know, the regulators have to be looking in this area. You know, I heard Dan Gallagher's response on it, you know, and, and you know, but that's why we had, that's why we had Robert Cook speak right after Dan so that the regulators <laughs> could, be there, could get their viewpoint on it, you know? Yeah. 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 That was actually really great because, you know, Dan kind of sat right down front there and and they had a back and forth. No, it's cool because they, mm -hmm. they acknowledged each other in, in the middle of the, of the remarks, which, look, I think that's good to see. Uh, it, it, it is should good be a dialogue. You know something? It, it is good to see it. I mean, listen, there's, 
you know, it's okay to have difference of opinions. You know, we got to keep the lines of communication open. But you are right, though. I mean, because Dan came down after he spoke. He sat next to me, and he's like, you know, grabbing me by the leg. And he's like looking up at Robert Cook. He's like, isn't this great? Like, you know, like he gets to like ink. Yeah. Somewhat tease Robert, you know, after I'm like, God, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. It was great. I love that. Ne- never one to stay quiet during a panel discussion, Mr. No. Gallagher. No. Is, so, but that sounds like a great, great back and forth at the conference and something I'm sure the attendees really enjoyed. We talked a little bit earlier, too, about another topic, best execution. I know, Kurt, you and I have hit on this a couple of times in our, our podcast history, uh, most notably with our episode 21, we entitled Trading Fast and Slow, which had actually one of the moderators, uh, Jim of the conference, John mm-hmm. Ramsey of IEX, came on the podcast alongside our friend Dan Eisman of MFS to talk about you know high-frequency trading generally, but we did get into some of the the, the trading and, and mechanics of, of filling orders um, and, and with the, the discussion of best execution at the conference last week, uh, you know, the potential for auctions and, you know, the downstream effects of that and how retail investors may be a little bit confused or, you know, hear the phrase best execution. And that can mean something different to a lot of people. So enlighten us a bit about how that conversation went at the conference last week, Jim. So, so you, you kind of touch on two areas that, that, you know, that enlightened me during it. Right. Right. So I, I did. So. The topic of best execution came up. We already have an existing standard that that Finra is that that Finra owns, and and they do modify it as as markets changed, change. So when Robert Cook was asked the question, "What do you think about the SEC coming up with their own best execution, you know, standard?" I thought his response was very you know eloquent. Eloquent. You know, he, he compared it to owning a puppy. You know, if you if you if you get a puppy, it take it takes a lot of you know you just don't. It takes it requires a lot of care, you know, as the puppy grows and stuff. And it was, I thought that was very enlightening on it. Mm. Um, you know, listen, the best X topic is 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 always going to be, I, I think, about p- just providing information for investors. But it is disappointing when we think about how much work we all put in for filling out those reports. And putting them out there in the public domain, and how little retail investors engage with it, I, it, it is that's a little disappointing because we, we still believe in, in putting the information together mm-hmm. and putting it out there in the public domain. But at the end of the day, the retail investors, what the, I think, what they're looking at these self-directed ones, they look they're looking at a price on a screen. They like the price on the screen. They hit a button and they're executing their trade at or near or in between the price on the screen, and they're happy with it. Yeah. So they don't really see it. And and another thing too is like sometimes the execution. This is another thing that kind of gets lost in 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 the, in the conversation, is that the relationship that the retail investor has with that self-directed platform, it's it's much broader than just the the buying of ten shares of Tesla. There are other things that these broker dealers are providing. So. They're looking at it from the perspective of like this, and you know this investor experience with the entire with the entire firm on it. So I think that's um, you know it is it is. Uh, I think we're providing a lot of information out there as an industry. Wish the retail investors would take more advantage of it. But at the end of the day, they they seem pretty happy with that. They're seeing a price and, and they're getting it on the screen. The one thing you did touch on was was auctions and and as far as the equity markets and and I think the part that wrong that really that resonated with me is that, and it should resonate with all of us, is that whenever we have these conversations in equity market structure around PFOF or, you know, self-directed investors, it, it, 
it only gets kind of held from the perspective of like a Robin Hood and Citadel mm-hmm. and or Schwab and Virtu. And and I think what 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 is getting lost here is that every major broker dealer has a self-directed product offering that they offer to their to their clients. I have an my account is at Bank of America and I have you know, I have my financial advisor and I have my self-directed platform that's available to me. And when Doug Sifu said that there are 240 to 250 broker dealers who are sending their self-directed order flow to Virtu for an execution, regulators need to listen to that because this, this conversation is so much bigger than just Robin Hood and Citadel. All right. So when you start bringing in a new way of executing a trade, like via, like I know this term auctions keeps getting you know, order by order competition through an auction mechanism. Those other firms, you got to be thinking about it from the perspective of like that self-directed investor, like Jimmy Toes, who has an account at Bank America, and how's that going? What's that going to look like, and what type of reaction you're going to get from Bank America? You know, but those firms that they're, they're sending orders to Virtu and and firms like those internalized, it's a huge transfer of risk. Once once they send the order over there, that that you know the risk is is off their books. And it's also, you know, very cost effective for them. If you start changing how orders are handled, and now you change that that relationship between the order entry firm and the order execution firm, and now that order entry firm is now going to either have to A, take on more risk, because they're going to have to make more de- a decision, or they're going to have to take on more cost by connecting directly to those venues. It's going to be, I, I, just, I just hope that they appreciate that because it, it's it's not going to get the response that they're hoping for. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that completely. You know, I think that maybe has less to do with what the investor or the user is going to see or, or even know about, right? We are really now in, in the market plumbing. But I, I agree with you in terms of the potential impact of that kind of rulemaking. I think that one of the things that the panels focused on a lot, though, was this idea of the user experience, the investor experience. And we've we've touched on it a little bit just in terms of, you know, Jim, you saying the investor sees the price, they like the price, they want to buy at that price. A lot of that has to do with the investor experience, whether they're using an application on their phone or they've logged into an account online. And you touched on it a little bit too in, with respect to people who entered the markets through a crypto trading platform and maybe want to transition to to trade more traditional securities, equities or options, whatever they want to trade. One of the things that, that folks talked a lot about a lot in terms of user experience is when they can trade. And again, you, you hinted at this a minute ago, but it seems like maybe there is an expectation from by many investors that they ought to be able to trade, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And currently they can trade basically when the sun is up Monday through Friday, right? <laughs> with the, yeah. with some exceptions, right? There are some places where you can trade 24 hours a day, five days a week. But, I, you know, I, I wonder if you can encapsulate that issue for us a little bit and tell us where things might be heading. Yeah, I mean, that, that I mean, I get to, it's a fascinating area because I, I, one of the things that gets me really curious about about this, this idea of, you know, 24-5 or 24-7 is that it seems like it's one, it's very rare when you can kind of come across some new area of growth where the smaller, more nimbler firm may be at a, an advantage to the bigger firm, right? So I think some of the people that kind of criticize this or speak down to it saying, oh, you know, there's not a lot of activity that occurs off U.S. hours and it's not good and they kind of poo-poo the idea, 
they usually come from a large firm because they know what it would take internally to kind of build out that, you know, you know to build out that type of infrastructure to, to support it. So I, am, I do get curious because it does seem like some of the people that are coming into this space tend to be, you know, new startups, ATSs with very senior people with very impressive resumes who have built this. All right. I, I mean, listen, I, I agree with I don't know who said it. Not a question. I think it might have been Quirk, Steve Quirk from from Robin who said it's not a question of of, you know, yes, you know, is this gonna happen or not? It's just a question of when. That yeah, that people are they're, they're gonna you're gonna be able to buy these things twenty four hours a day, whether it's five days a week or seven. There's a very good chance that, that some sixteen year old doesn't even know what a market open or a market close is. You know, and, and maybe there's benefits on it. But I but again, regulars are gonna have to really look at this. I mean what what is that what does best sex mean after after four o'clock? You know that that's how are orders handled after four o'clock? They're going to have to really look at the order handling of, of the of how these orders are being handled. They're going to have to look at what's available, what disclosures are being made. But but it's it's coming. It's it's no it's coming. Jim, we've covered a lot of, of the great content that's come across the, the 89th conference from, from STA, but we'd love to hear, Jim, we've touched on a few topics. What was one big takeaway for you that maybe we haven't discussed on, yet on today's episode? What was your favorite part of the conference? Uh, you know, Besides the relief, right, of, of 11 months, what, three weeks and, and however many days of buildup, uh, finally getting this in the books. But uh, you know, what did you take away from last week? Listen, I mean, I mean, I like I like the fact that, that the, yes, it's, it's a lot of content that we throw at people on it. I like the fact that people that are in the room, so many of them are competitors, right? They, they compete, not just, not just among broker deals, competing with broker deals, but obviously, you know, between and among market participants, right? Broker deals and exchanges. And it's just nice that you can kind of provide an environment for them to kind of come in and, and, and meet and talk and, and have a drink. And, 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 you know, you even hear a couple of them laughing from time to time. So I think that's, that's kind of what I kind of, you know, listen, that is part of the goal here is to get people with different business models in the room talking. We just think that that's, you know, that that discourse, whether it's just a general conversation or, or a full-blown argument, you know, that, that that produces the best outcome for everybody on it. And, and and creating family moments, too. I mean, the Dick DeMia Pactum Award, really happy to give that to Larry Tab and, and the philanthropy as well. But I think those are the things that kind of make us really proud about how the event turns out. That's excellent. And, and unfortunately for me, you know, I, I found out, Kurt, you were attending. Oh, you were sitting in a seat and we were texting back last week. And, and Jim, I know this is not the only thing that STA focuses on throughout the year. Where else can we find more information about uh, programming from STA or, or, or anything else coming up on the calendar? Yeah, so I mean, so our, our affiliates, like I talked about, they, they all tend to have, the affiliates tend to have like one big event every year. And then they have a couple of, you know, light touch events, we call them. It's on the website, on, on the events page. What's the, I think we're kind of done for the year. I think, oh, Denver. We have one coming up in Denver. They like to do one in the first week in December. So, the, you know, they're good events, man. If, you know, I always recommend, if, you, if you're doing business outside of, you know, to plan your travel around it. That's, that's what I kind of tell people. It's like, listen, if you <laughs> plan your travel around it. If you have, if you got a client in, in Denver, odds are, you know, there's going to be an STA event kind of taking place three times a year there. You know, why not go and get two birds with one stone? or two drinks with one beer, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love it. We'll, we'll definitely include 
on the in the show notes a link where folks can find out about some of those different programs around the country. And if anybody wants to go to the one in Denver, let us know. Maybe we'll be there. Chris, you, you up for hey, a trip? Jim, if you're buying me two beers for one beer or whatever that was, I'll be there. <laughs> oh, yeah, one after that. I, I, I guess I get something. You guys really do. You really do put on a good good podcast. I mean, there's a lot of the content you put out. You guys have good chemistry together. I really do find the this, this stuff that I mean, I don't, I don't listen to all of them, but I do. I, I probably get to around. We'll cut that. Them. We'll cut that line, Jim. Yeah. We'll cut that yeah, line. No, yeah. <laughs> no, but you guys, it's, it's good. I mean, like, this, there's so much that goes into, you know, changes to our industry occur from, from so many different factors, competitive, regulatory, you know, lawsuits, <laughs> accounting, yeah. you know, so on. And, and so I do look to you for, you know, when something does, when I see it come up and I see what the, what the subject matter is, I, I definitely listen in. I appreciate the opportunity today. That's great. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate the kind words. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Jim Toes of the Security Traders Association. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag Insecurities Pod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.